Ecclesiastes 8, pick up at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Chapter 9. But all this I I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Uh, We've said uh, that the preacher king um, is urging his readers... Um, to apply wisdom here in this life, and that is life from an under the heaven uh, under heaven perspective, in contrast to living life under the sun, that is under a you know a man centered and anthropomorphic view, um, or an anthropocentric view of life. Um, we live as believers um, by way of uh, a theocentric view of life. So he urges us to apply wisdom. We have wisdom above all wisdom. That is godly wisdom. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. So he's been addressing the issue of wisdom and obviously continues to do so through the rest of the book. Uh, but here the teacher's defining um, wisdom for living amidst situations that are beyond our control. Uh, last time he zeroed in on those who live under the reign of, of a powerful dictatorial, um, in this context, would be an eastern king. Living under a monarchy, the point is, kings can be very unpredictable. So you need wisdom to live under a dictatorial monarch. Verse 2, if you look at that, he said, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Now, with the anointing of a new king, Back in this day, people would swear allegiance to the king. So the teacher says, the wise, those who have wisdom, will keep the thing, the king's command, um, remembering that uh, they took a vow of allegiance before him. Therefore, that's wisdom. Don't forget that. In verse 3, he says, do not join in an evil matter. 
for he will do whatever he pleases. In other words, be very careful not to become involved in some campaign to resist or dethrone the king. Be very wise if you're going to stand against the civil magistrate. Because in in, in attempting to bring him down, he'll bring you down. So be wise in making your stand with those who, who have some cause, though it might not be best for society, be very wise in what you make your stand over. And we concluded last week, there are times to resist authority. Um, it's biblical when authorities tell us to do that which God tells us not to do, we resist. They tell us not to do what God tells us to do, we resist. With all that being said, uh, be, be very wise when you resist the king because the cost is great. Kings can kill you. That's the wisdom. Living under the power of a king that's beyond our control. That, that's what we looked at last time. And today, um, our attention is drawn uh, to the theme of injustice. It's another subject um, that's beyond our control. Um, living as we do um, under the reign of God. And that is, you know, when the wicked seem to prosper. When the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous are condemned. When the wicked are praised and the righteous receive the penalty that's actually due to the wicked. These things are beyond our control. The wicked receive rewards where the righteous ought to be the ones receiving the reward. So the issues the preacher deals with in this subject um, is, if it sounds familiar, it's a subject, it's a theme he revisits. Um, The conclusion to this whole thing is is found in chapter 9, verse 2, and that is that the same fate comes to the righteous and the wicked. That is, they all die. I mean, ultimately, that's our end. We're going to all die. So that is a conclusion that has already been made. That's a point of emphasis that he made back in chapter 2, verse 14. He says the the same fate befalls them all. Chapter 3, verse 19, they all die. Now, one reason that this theme is reiterated is that it's a nagging problem within the soul of men. It's one thing to simply consider it. It's quite another when you experience it firsthand. So therefore, the preacher, Koalef, um, revisits these themes throughout in different contexts. So that's what we're seeing here um, this morning. You know, it's the age-old question, why do bad things happen in life to good people and so on? Why does such good fortune happen in the life of those who are evil? Good and evil, you know, the good being those who fear God, evil being those who are enemies of God. Why do they seem to prosper? And you know, this conundrum is what Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, said when he, when he said that this reality made his feet almost stumble. His steps, he said, had nearly slipped. You look at chapter 73, verse, Psalm 73, verse 3, notice, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. 
Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. So it's the age-old problem. It nags the soul of men, so he addresses it once again. And here, Koaleth begins with the vanity of giving honor to the wicked at their death. The preacher here reflects under the sun and the burial of the wicked. Now, in the ancient Near East, it's important to understand, in the ancient Near East, it was considered a curse to be denied a burial. The worst thing imaginable. Because that is a picture of having one's flesh exposed in the open and having your flesh and your eyes plucked out by scavenger birds. For instance, we read uh, the the impending judgment through the mouth of uh, the prophet Jeremiah when he said this, Jeremiah 16, They shall die of a deadly disease. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. There's a picture for you. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead body shall be food for the birds of the air, for the beasts of the earth. Now, even more vivid than that picture, is given, one is given to us in the, in the apocalyptic literature of the book of Revelation, chapter 19. This has to do with Christ's second coming. And in contrast, there's two great feasts talked about in the book of Revelation. One is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the other is known as the great supper of God, for which all unbelievers believers will not, not partake of, but they'll be partaken of. Look at these words. When Christ comes back, there's this gathering, this picture, apocalyptic literature. It's all pictures, a picture of great scavenger birds at a great supper, Two, verse 18, eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. All the birds were gorged with their flesh. So here and now, Koaleth, he says, not only are the wicked given a burial, okay, that's the picture of being cursed, not having a burial. Not only are the wicked given a burial, he says, They're honored at their burial. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. It's vanity, he says, when when wicked men are given honor at their death. These are the enemies of God and they're honored. You know, sometimes the wicked are praised in our society. Amen? When their evil is blatant, when it's obvious, that is by those who know God and know God's word. I mean, you look at all that you've heard as of late in the news about Planned Parenthood. Wicked. Evil. And certain politicians in certain core parts of society... Um, certain major news media stand in support and even applaud Planned Parenthood year after year. That's how we see it today. And then those who voice concern, 
those who make a stand in opposition to the evil are considered evil. Good is evil. Evil is good. Isaiah said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah chapter 5. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So this is the vanity that the preacher king is talking about. This is nothing new. Is there anything new under the sun? Not according to Koleth which is the Hebrew term, by the way, for preacher, teacher. Notice verse 10 when he says, uh, I saw the wicked bury, they used to go in and out of the holy place. Now, holy place here could be the temple. It could be the city of Jerusalem. It could be, you know, a a local synagogue. Um, I think more specifically in context to what we've been reading would be the office of the civil magistrate. Because I think it fits well in connection to verse 9. Look at verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Okay, and then back in verse 8, we read that there's no amount of earthly power, context, dictatorial king. Okay, there's no, there's no amount of earthly power, be it the king's armies or all that he has at his disposal that will win when death comes knocking at his door, okay? Because death is the great equalizer of all men. So in that flow, in that context, it would seem that the holy place would be his office as a civil magistrate. So the vanity here is that all kinds of pomp and praise are given to them, the wicked, when they die. They're praised in the city that they made all these evil decisions. That's the idea. He said, this is absurd. This makes no sense. You know, under the sun people, people who live without God in view of life is the sovereign, omnipotent author, creator of all, sovereign over all. People who live under the sun Um, deal with the death of the wicked like this. They honor them when they die, and they build monuments in their honor. Okay, so the preacher king goes on now to speak of uh, evildoers in general. So he goes from evil dictatorial kings who are honored when they're buried, and they're actually given a burial, and then honored, and then he goes on to evil in general, verse 11. Because... The sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the wicked, the heart of the children of man, is fully set to do evil. So the question here would be, is he referring to divine sentencing or human sentencing? So we'll look at both of them. Because I don't know what, which one he's referring to. Could be both. Okay, scripture is clear, right? The soul that sins shall die. Yet the wicked continue on. And that gives them, the wicked, the false impression that everything's okay. So they become emboldened in their evil. God's not judging me. My life's blessed. Think about the crooked 
Ponzi scheming businessman, quote unquote businessman. Life's good, man. God's not judging me. And the question for us is, why doesn't God just send down fire and consume them all? Evildoers. You know, why does, you know, the Ponzi schemer who robs investors of their savings, you know, walk into the party like they're, you know, walking onto a yacht, smiling? To quote Carly Simon. <laughs> it's, you walked into the party like you're walking into a yacht, right? Yeah. You're so vain. I bet you think this song's about you. <laughs> why do those who rob, pillage, and steal, why aren't they just consumed with fire from heaven? That's the question. Well, the Lord gives us an answer in Romans 2. Do you suppose you'll escape the judgment of God? That's the context. Do you suppose, evildoer, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We ask the question, It's just postponed. His rage, as we read in Revelation, it's just postponed. You know, Peter, of course, warned about scoffers who in the last days, who follow their own sinful desires, sinful passions, wicked ways, they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they are. They continue on as they were from the beginning of creation. Then he goes on to say, but with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. So fret not. He will judge. Okay, so there's the answer if he's referring to divine sentencing. Here, uh, probably referring to civil judgment, because civil magistrates are God's ministers of Justice. Where under their jurisdiction, the kind of actions that are to be punished, here, they're neglected. They're not carried out. He, the civil magistrate, is to execute God's wrath against the evildoer. That's true in the Old Testament. That's true in the New Testament. Capital punishment is of God. From God to be carried out according to the word of God. So when they're negligent to their duty, the hearts of men that are bent on evil are encouraged to do even more evil because there is no consequence. So the the point is where punishment is delayed for a long time as people do their evil and get away with it, This kind of evil spreads with a vengeance in neighborhoods, cities, and countries. You see it? It spreads. When, on the other hand, people are faced directly with the consequence of their punishment with swift, that is swift punishment that's actually carried out, um, certain crimes, whatever they may be, will cause the perpetrators to stop and think and consider, they're going to have to give it account. 
Now, there's not to be hurriedness in, in, in the judicial process. We see that in Scripture as well. However, when the subjects are proven as guilty, sentencing is to be swift. Because he, the, the, the civil magistrate, we read in Romans 13, we read, he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword has to do with capital punishment. For he is God's servant, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So when justice is delayed, the point is, the principle is, men are emboldened in their evil. And it spreads. In America, you have men sitting on death row. 10, 15, 20 years, that's a joke. It's a shameful embarrassment. So because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Thus says the Lord. So here the preacher moves from frustration under the sun to hope. Verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, notice this, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear for him. Now these verses are the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is not a pessimistic book. I told you about a neighbor of mine who came up one day, I was sitting on the front porch, and he goes, man, I'm reading through Ecclesiastes, it's very depressing. If you don't understand the context, it would be depressing. When you understand the context and how to, how to read it and interpret it, it's, very, it's filled with hope. It's not a pessimistic book. Amen? You, have you been seeing that? I hope. So he says, though that an evildoer may do evil a hundred times, sometimes they do. And though he may prolong his days, live a long life, sometimes they do. You know, the, the wicked may have Many, many apparently on the surface good years, but they don't finally win. Amen? They will not ultimately succeed. Their days won't be prolonged. They will die. They'll be judged. And then the righteous will be vindicated. So sometimes vindication is a long way off for those who fear the Lord. So he's very optimistic. And it will ultimately be, he says, he says, this I know, it will ultimately be very good for those who fear the Lord. This I know, he says. Because he knows this based not on experience. He knows this by the basis of of, of divine revelation. Those who fear God know the overarching divine purposes of God, and we know that although he may delay his justice and may allow his children to suffer tyranny and and to suffer difficulty, he says, I know it will be well with all who have faith in the one true God. That's the point. See, as believers, we know the final score, amen? And since I see a couple of you baseball fans, since baseball season's upon us, though we may be down... In the eighth inning, right? Getting skunked in the eighth, in, in eighth inning, we know that we will come back and win in the ninth. Amen? 
that we know this. He knows this. And we may not, may we not forget we were part of the evil team at one time as unbelievers. We've been transformed and, in, in, transformed and redeemed and are now on the righteous team because our righteousness is in him, attributed to us. And now we give warning and hope. We warn about hell, divine punishment, and hope in the deliverer, Jesus Christ. That's the message that we now have. Warning and hope. Verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. Now, in verse 12, he just said they prolong their days. Now he says they won't. And his point is that life here is very brief. And once the shadow passes, and it will pass, once the shadow passes, those who do not fear God, his life will not extend beyond the grave. Your life will extend beyond the grave. Now, that does not mean he goes out of conscious existence. What it means is that he experiences death consciously for eternity eternity that's a horror that's a horrific thought that's what hell is a living conscious death forever so though he may prolong his days here it may seem in time and space he will not prolong his days beyond the grave for he will taste death forever and we know that as the second death Now, civil governments, think about the wicked. You look at them and we read about people whose consciences are seared. We also know that although the civil magistrate cannot judge men's consciences or how they think, God can. And many times he does. And many people bent on evil, trying to escape an evil conscience, want to escape it, So they try to kill themselves, but they'll never escape it. They seek death. Revelation puts it like this. They seek death and cannot find it. Death flees from them. So as regards apocalyptic literature, again, this is Revelation 9, verse 6, and the context is is a swarm of locusts whose stings in their tails is like the, the sting of a scorpion. It can't kill you, but it is very painful, and it never goes away. He says, in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In in other words, to just go out of conscious existence doesn't happen. You try to escape a tormented soul because God, you know, there's no rest for the wicked. Isaiah 57, 20. The wicked are like a tossing sea. It cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So there is no escape. Even from earthly temporal judgment, torment of the conscious, there's no escape for the wicked. If they try to leave that and off themselves here, try to seek, they, 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 they try to, Kill themselves, it only gets worse. 
This is the end for the wicked. Are you encouraged yet? Aren't you glad that you've been delivered? (laughs) Scripture in its proper context is, is very sobering, beloved. Amen. Now, contrast that thinking with Paul's desire to depart and be with the Lord. The place for the righteous, those who are in Christ, who've been delivered. So for those in Christ, death leads to eternal blessing, life beyond the grave. And the wicked, though they seem to prolong their days here, will not prolong their days once they taste death. That's the point. So the satisfaction of justice can't ultimately be found on this side. That's his point. But there is coming a day when all injustices will be solved for men, women, and children whose faith and trust is in the one true God. You will be vindicated, he says. You may suffer now the injustices of life. You will, especially believers, you will be vindicated. Verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. So now here, he tur- after all that, he turns back to that which is done upon the earth. That is the vanity of inverted justice. Iniquity. Everything's upside down. Justice is turned on its head, is his point. And if you notice, Ecclesiastes does not close its eyes to the injustices of life or the sufferings of life, does it? No. No. It's a very humbling book. Because Ecclesiastes really shows us how limited we are. We're limited. That's why he's going to go on and give us more hope here in a couple verses. Next verse, actually. So this is his counsel now. So he he touches on it again. The wicked, they seem to prosper. The righteous, they suffer. And now I commend to you this, he says, verse 15. I commend joy. Why? For man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil. Okay, you live in toil. This... Eating and drinking and being joyful will go with him through the toil of the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So his counsel is the return to another theme he already spoke about. If you remember back in chapter 2, 3, and 5. While the injustices of life, while the riddles of life can be very overwhelming and even crushing, he says, here's the remedy. Through all of this, He commends joy. Be joyful. His counsel. Enjoy each good day that God gives you. Enjoy it. Now, this is not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's a whole other context when Paul uses that. Amen? That's not this. This is, look, since no one knows what's coming tomorrow, enjoy every good day God gives you. Christians shouldn't be sour. You know, we're just Christians and we can't have fun. That's what unbelievers think Christianity is. Hey, I thought you were a Christian. Well, I am. Well, I thought Christians don't blah, 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 fill in the blank. 
when those things aren't evil is what I'm talking about. Now, this fits with what Jesus says, doesn't it? Matthew 6, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, oftentimes it's very easy for us to overlook uh, the goodness and loving kindness of God in ordinary things of life, like your spouse that you harp on all the time, if you harp on your wife or your husband. Rather than saying, man, Lord, you've really blessed me. Your children, Lord, you've blessed me. Lord, our home. Lord, my friendship with so-and-so. Lord, my, my, my job. Let alone a solid fellowship of believers. Daily provisions. You know, Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, put your hope in God, amen? Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So having now deeply considered these things, he commends joy. Okay, what is this idea of joy? Bottom line is we've already looked at this theme. To have this kind of joy is to have contentment. It's to be content. There's no way to experience this kind of joy if you're not content. That is content with the portion God has given you. The portion God has given you. Okay, now... Koaleth has made it clear, look, we have no power to save the world, amen? We have no power to save the world. We cannot change the injustices of life. We cannot make straight that which God has made what? Crooked. We've seen all of this. And though he may use us as instruments for change, he may do so. Nevertheless, he always does that in context of our calling according to his purposes. So you don't have to compare yourself with someone else. You can be content in what he's made you to be, what he's provided you with. And then he says joy is found in the midst of all this, all that we've read, all that he's laid down, and we can enjoy these things in life under the sun, verse 15. And under the sun now isn't meaning a worldview, because that's not our worldview, but this is life as we know it on this earth for now. And he says it's to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So that's another theme revisited, and it's the theme of contentment. And that's the key to this kind of joy. He touched on it in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 5, verse 18. And they're all applied in different settings. Principle's the same. The key to this kind of joy. Contentment, in other words, is humble submission to divine providence. You have power over providence? No, because it's God's. And this is where it's found. Contentment equals joys. Contentment equals joy or having joy in the midst of these certain kinds of injustices that the preacher has laid down for us. So you can enjoy, in other words, the fruits of your labor. You can enjoy the fruits of your labor without having to compare them with someone else's fruits of labor. So you can eat, you can drink, and you can enjoy your family, you can enjoy your, your, your family of faith in the midst of all this seeming chaos. 
The people who aren't content are the self-centered in Scripture. Anytime I find myself discontent, I'm being self-centered. I could use myself as, as an example, but for the sake of embarrassment of myself, I won't. Bottom line, self-centered people are never content because they always desire the other, the other person, the other place, the other thing. You think about manhood and womanhood. God made you either a man or a woman, right? If you're not content, you have problems. You think about the feminist movement. Destroyed this culture. Destroyed American culture. Because their agenda was to declare womanhood was bad. I am Roman woman, hear me roar, right? We're going to be like men and roar. That's nonsense. That's stupidity. When a woman denies her calling to be, say, in the context of a wife, a helpmate, to raise children, you deny it, you'll never be content. Never. We read principles in the Bible about manhood and womanhood. And, and why are we as believers supposed to subject ourselves to that which God has laid out? He tells us, this is our, what men are supposed to do. Be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Older women, likewise, be reverent behavior, not slanders, slaves to much wine, to teach what is good. Young women, or older women, train up younger women. All of this. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. That's why. So that's a problem if it shows up, obviously, in the church. You know, slothful people, lazy people who call themselves Christians, they're never content. They can never be contented because they're lazy. So they can never... Take pride in their work. You'll be discontent. So he tells us here, look, know your call. However God has gifted you. Know your place. Do your work. And in the midst of all this toil that you have no control over, enjoy the fruits of your labor. That's the remedy. The things outside of our control, says Kola. And then finally, he says, another thing you want to do is acknowledge your finiteness. So he's back to the limitations of man's knowledge here. Verse 16. When I, applied my, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night do one's eyes see sleep. You know, people who are deeply curious and inquisitive regarding the affairs of providence, you know, we may see what happens, but we don't know why. Those who overly involve their mind with these mysteries you have to realize it's an answerless quest. And all they do is lose sleep. They lose sleep. So as human beings, we will plumb the depths as much as we're given, seeking to find out what is done under the sun. And that's a good thing. I mean, God, look at what God has done for us by way of, say, medicine. 
Praise God. He's given man the gift. Plumb the depths. Seek what we can seek out. And in God's providential grace, we come up with anesthesia. Who wants to have surgery without anesthesia? (laughs) We praise God for that. But there are some things that are just beyond finding out. They're unsearchable. And that's really the point. Even the wisest of men cannot figure these things out. And the end is, he'll just lose sleep. Verse 17, Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. That leads to much anxiety. So what the preacher is saying here is that we'll never be able to give a full explanation of the here and now because we're mere creatures. He's the creator. We're not. And therefore, much is hidden from us. Amen? And finally, he gives the answer. Okay? And now, it's the answer of faith. Chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds, they are in the hand of God. They're in the hand of God. That is a declaration of sovereignty and the, vic- the victory of faith in the sovereign one. It's all in his hand. You know, some people expect all of the answers, and when they fail to obtain all of the answers, they start shaking their fist at God. Perhaps you've experienced that yourself. We don't know why. This thing or that thing is a mystery. We can't obtain the answer, so we get mad at God. We become irate at what's happening or what's not happening in and around our lives. And we forget it's in God's hand. So God's ways, the detailed specifics are a mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to who? The Lord. They belong to the Lord. So we must resign ourselves, he says, to the fact that our understanding is limited. So the answer to the perplexity is faith in that reality. God holds it in his hand. He's our authority. We do not rely on reason. As believers, we rely on what? Revelation. Revelation. Divine revelation. That's how we understand the world. It's by divine revelation. It's in his hand. And then more than that, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Christ has been revealed to you like he has not been revealed to the unbelieving world. He's the answer. He is the hope. And he's granted us his wisdom. Wisdom that comes from above. All authority has been given to him in heaven above and earth below. The philosopher and statesman um, Francis Bacon warned us. He said this, quote, not to draw down or submit the mysteries of God to our own reason. So we'll conclude with Paul's words. Confessing as he did his faith in the mysteries of God, in the mind of God. Romans 11. Oh, the depth 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Together we say, Amen. Amen.